If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Not with me this week, Gareth Hughes. He's uh, attending to some family business around the holidays, uh, but we wish him well. But filling in this week, a a legendary figure (laughs) on this show whose name is often evoked, but who has never once graced our airwaves uh, well, does do podcasts have airwaves? Uh, technically speaking, no. Uh, but who has never once graced whatever these waves would be called. She is my mother, Bobby Burke, dialing in from our Oxford, Ohio bureau. Mom, how does it feel to finally be on Just Not Sports? As what I only can imagine, other than myself, the only other person who's heard every <laughs> episode of this show. <laughs> well, Brad, it's really exciting, and I'm really excited that we aren't doing anything with um, kind of psychological thriller books. Oh, Stephen King, Mom. Yo, know, I, I, I am not. Uh, I'm not calling you for your thoughts on the Stand uh, miniseries, if if that's what you were worried about. <laughs> that's I, right. Good. So you you're in Oxford, Ohio. You're uh, uh, seated. You're what, what? What are they calling you? You are officially hunkered down for the holidays. Um, how are you holding up, Mom? I mean, I talk to you every day. I don't know why we have to force this conversation, but <laughs> doing you, fine. Are, no. Tell our audience though, how are you holding up? You do, doing okay? I'm doing okay. You know, if I get a little exercise done every day, it really helps calm whatever it is that's going on in my mind. So okay. Good. Well, look, every once in a while, Mom, you send me stuff to read, and I would say I'm batting about a respectable two seventy five average on how much I actually click through. And read that stuff. (laughs) But you sent me an article that is uh, related to the topic we're going to talk about today with our guest, which I'll get into in a second. And it's a topic that also relates to my experience growing up and your experience for really the last quarter century of of your life. So you sent me this article by Chuck Culpepper, the reporter for the Washington Post. And he had written about the what I imagine is almost the almost 25th anniversary now of when Miami University, which is nestled in our hometown, um, when they changed their nickname from Redskins to Red Hawks. And so on today's show, we're going to talk to Chuck about his piece, about why it's so relevant now, about uh, what we can learn from it. But I also thought it would be beneficial, Mom, to dial you in, because this is something that you've been uh, not only close to just geographically, but I would say ideologically, uh, uh, with how you work at the university and your role in the community. So I'm excited to ask you, uh, to, to pepper you with a few questions if you will indulge me, Mom. Sounds good. Uh, let's start here. What did you think about the article and, and what a blast from the past it was seeing all of these names being interviewed? Uh, Steve Snyder, former mm-hmm. Oxford mayor, I believe, who, who I repped his uh, state senate run uh, gear all the way through high school. Uh, Wayne Embry, who once, I think, traded a player in our kitchen using our phone. <laughs> um, all these other people that were that were quoted, what was it like kind of running back the story from back then for you? Well, the first reaction I had to it was I wasn't sure why it was happening right now. Um, since the summer was when the 
Washington football team was having their own situation with mascot name changes. And so I was a little thrown by that. But then the longer I read the story, I got really intrigued by the fact that he talked to so many people. So part of the reason why I sent it to you was because you were going to know a lot of the people that were in the article and you were going to understand who they were in the context of the name change time, which was in the middle of the 90s versus who they are today. And so I thought that was going to be the fun part for you is that the names like you just mentioned are people that you were going to know who they were and what role they were playing in all of this. So that was my first reaction. And I um, I did enjoy some of the stories that I hadn't heard before. So I thought that was kind of fun, too. I think I I had to be graduating high school the year they changed it, right? 1997, is that right? Well, the actual summer of 96 was when the um, resolution came from the Miami tribe asking Miami University to stop using the term Redskins. And so that was in September of 1996. And then they took the year of nine, the rest of 96, 97 to actually consider what the name change could be if they once they decided they were going to do away with it. Um, and so then it didn't make its name change until the 97, 98 school year. Okay, so for people who are wondering why my mom knows so much about all these details, <laughs> it's because of the w role you had at Miami University um, and how it evolved over the years. Now, you just retired this past year. Perfect timing, mom, because there was so much for you to get out and do all throughout 2020. Yeah. Just lovely. Exactly. I just <laughs> didn't even know how to keep myself from being so busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell us about your role with uh, between the university and the Miami tribe and how that evolved um, over the past few decades. As the administration changed at the university, a lot of different kinds of things happened. Um, the initial contact with the Miami tribe was back in 1972. And at that particular time, when they asked the Miami tribe if they would be willing to support the use of Redskins, um, when that happened, um, they sent Miami University wrote a resolution, sent it to the tribe, and they actually, I think, had a pretty good discussion about it at the meeting. And then they they decided they could support it. And so throughout the 80s, what it was ending up happening is that the, the emphasis on this relationship was really about athletics. In 1990, the vice president for student affairs um, moved into that position, a new, a new person, and she was really committed to diversity. And in the context of all of that, she's a really big person in terms of making a difference in this relationship. And it's shifted from, from athletics to education. And so things became, how can we do something on campus that educates about the Miami tribe? What can we do to help the Miami tribe more specifically? It all began to shift in a really different way so that by the time we got to 90, 93, 4, and 5, there were lots of different things that, that flared up that were, in fact, the controversies about the, the mascot names. And I got involved as the coordinator of Miami tribe relations, and I did that job from 1994 until I retired in 2019. Growing up with you, you know, taking on that role, uh, I got such a greater appreciation for the people who make up the Miami tribe. A again, I think a lot of people see these nickname arguments as some sort of academic dispute because they're, they don't understand or they don't take the time to try to understand the people at the heart of that, uh, of these issues. From your perspective, how much did it, how much would you like to communicate the actual, like, 
uh, you know, relationship the university has to the real people and how much easier it is to make it a decision of, yeah, let's change this stupid racist name. And, uh, you know, how is how much easier is it to um, embrace that idea once you actually have an appreciation for the people of, of this community? I think the dilemma is that not a lot of people knew the individuals in the Miami Tribe. So my position was one in which I could get to know them better. But from a perspective of the larger community, the Miami University community certainly didn't know them on a personal level. I think part of what became confusing is that because the tribe had said early on that they could support this, a lot of people at Miami University couldn't understand why they changed their mind. And I think in my mind, if you think about this as a generational topic, something that changes over a generational period of time, it makes a whole lot more sense that as younger people came in to be prominent members of the Miami tribe, their opinion became really valuable. And that's when things began to change. So the people that I worked with were all people who were in the younger generations coming into play in the Miami tribe. And then, you know, you're really in tune with what they think about the importance of what's going on and how their culture is being represented. And so I guess I would say then that's what I think came about by knowing the people on a personal level. In this story, Mom, for people who might read it, I recommend everyone read it. They talk about the Miamia Center. It's helpful to appreciate the nuances there. Sure. The Miamia Center began in 2001. So thinking five years after the name change. And it really is the research arm of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma. And so because the fact that there had been 20 years of this relationship by the time the Miami tribe was saying to themselves, you know, they've got some people who are really actively involved in revitalizing their Miami language. They needed a place to take that that was going to be a safe way to keep doing research about that. And what better place to put it than into a university community where, you know, all those kinds of things can can percolate and happen. And so that's when the Miami Center began in 2001. And so at that particular, and actually the Miami tribe would say to you, and that current have said several times, had Miami University not made this name change, they would not have trusted the university to put this extremely important entity, this Miami Center, that was going to do revitalization of their language and then their culture, they would not have put it on the Miami University campus. And so I think that's a really critical part to know. And what's coming on now is the center is gaining enormous amounts of um, visibility and prominence because it's had a variety of different things happen with it. And they're leading the pack right now in revitalizing indigenous languages. It's a very exciting thing to see what's happened. It's certainly exciting for me to see what's happened over the course of the time that I was actually involved with the Miami tribe. I think back to that era, mom, especially like in the, you know, we, we moved to Oxford in 1988. You went to Miami, you graduated in 70, correct? Correct. Uh-huh. So I would describe Miami at that time as a athletic culture uh, rooted in the past, in the, in the overindulgence of the past. There was the famous Miami cradle of coaches where you know, they would kind of celebrate their their Beckler, Era Parsegian, Weeb Eubank all came up through Miami. That was sort of fetishized in this way that as the as the school clearly could not keep pace with the Ohio States and Michigans of the world, um, the, the glorification of their past uh, connection to those bigger names became so 
so key. And I do remember the debates happening at the time, and especially the older alumni who kind of clung to the name Redskins as some sort of bullshit way to honor uh, Native peoples. What do you say to people who see a, a name like Redskins or what's happening with uh, you know, Cleveland with their baseball team or Atlanta with the Braves um, or even our high school, you know, in, in the in Talawanda High School in Oxford, changed the name Braves to Brave. What do you what do you say to people who say, well, it honors these native peoples and it's erasing them to change the name? Well, I guess you have to ask yourself when you do something and the the entity that's a part of what you're doing says to you that it offends them, it seems like you really have to stop and say, well, then no matter what we intend it to do, it's obviously not doing that. If the other people are saying that is offensive. And I think that's the crux of the whole conversation is why didn't we listen to Native American people who were saying all along, it's not honoring. It isn't honoring. It's taking them back 250 years to a different time when Natives lived. And they don't want to be seen that way. And part of the problem with Native education is that it all happens in history class. It's all about their past. And they would all say, the Miami tribe would all say, they want to be seen as contemporary people. They do not want you to see them as what they looked like in 1700. And so I think that that's the part. If it's all in the past, which is the way we've been teaching about Native American people, then there is no way to see that there is all right now, there is a contemporary Native community in, in lots of different places. And so I think that's the piece that I would try to explain. The other thing you, the other really compelling argument you made to me back then and, and over the years for all of these debates is that at one point it got so out of whack with the sheer number of teams that were named after Native Americans in some way, right? Correct. And I think that I'm certainly not the right spokesperson to talk about that from a research perspective. But I do think that in the latter part of the 1800s, and as we started into the 1900s, what you begin to see is as the a mascot kind of system starts to create itself, that people see it as a, a past. It's all gone. You're, like you just said, it's not anything that's still continuing, even though there were still Native communities that were trying to make things happen for themselves, but that wasn't what we were seeing. And so it is interesting that so many schools on the middle school, high school, college level, and then in the professional sports chose to have something that was a native image and then a name associated with them. And I think, again, it goes back to something they thought was gone. So it didn't matter if you brought it up again because it was already gone. And so that's the big objection, I think, that contemporary native people have today. And look, we're going to get into my interview with Chuck Culpepper because I think his he he dives into a lot of the nuances of the piece, but most specifically is this. And I'll 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 finish with you here, mom. Nothing really happened after the name change that would have like made it bad to follow Miami sports. In fact, I I bring up in the in the interview you know, Miami had its like glory days after the name change happened. Wally Zerbiak bringing them to the Sweet 16 and and Ben Roethlisberger, I think they were like undefeated one year with him and, and like in the top 15 in football for the first time in generations. And I remember people just being enthusiastic to watch the teams and follow them and root for them. So can you, what would you say to people who follow a team with one of these last kind of diehard Native, Native American nicknames 
How would you reassure them that, hey, it's still just as fun to watch the team play without all that junk on the uniforms? <laughs> right. I guess it's just hard to understand why they're so wrapped up in the name or even the image that you see. Why? Like you're saying, it's about the team. Whatever you call the team, it's a it's about the team. And you're going to be a fan because you want the team to to be good. You want them to to end up with good seasons. And so that's where the fan stuff comes in. I, I, it is hard for me to understand why people are so wrapped up in the name change that they can't. When people are saying it's this, we're modern days now, we've got to figure out how we become current in the way we use language. When people are saying that, why, why isn't it acceptable then to say we've got to change? Change is what happens all the time. And we're happening, we're seeing it happen really in a lot of places right now. So just letting go of the fact that you can't hold on to those things forever. Mom, I, I'm so excited to be living in a community outside Chicago where the high school is the Vikings. Cause like this has followed me my whole <laughs> life. You moved us to a to college town where the team name was freaking Redskins. My, I went mm -hmm. to a high school. Uh, I was the tribe in middle school. I was the high school was the Braves. I went to college. They're also the Braves. I could never escape this garbage. So I'm just very happy. Uh, um, I'm very happy <laughs> to uh, finally be in a community where it's like, fine, Vikings, green and gold. Let's go. <laughs> and luckily, Brad, there aren't a lot of communities of Vikings around who could be objective. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, Mom, this was fun. It was fun to have you on. I mean, I'm sorry I didn't have you on to talk about a more lighthearted <laughs> topic. We're talking about a, a gravely serious one. But it's back in the news. You know, the, the Cleveland issue is, 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 is rising again. I, I'm still flabbergasted. The Washington football team changed its name. I thought they were going to be the last hardliners. And I think Redskins is the most appalling. Certainly it's a slur. I would never ever consider calling someone that term or, or aiming it as at, uh, Native American peoples. Uh, it would be the most offensive thing you could say, which is why I was so flabbergasted that people have such a problem with it and why there are some hardliners who think that the name is no big deal. Right, and Brad, you know, the people that I worked with at the Miami Center, if they had to write that, if they were trying to write that word, they would put a capital R and then, you know, whatever like the asterisk are indicating that, yeah, they're not going to say it. All right, well, look, now we're going to get to our interview with Chuck Culpepper. Great piece. Go look it up first. It's about the, you know, the lessons learned and the journey of one school in changing its abhorrent nickname from Redskins to Redhawks. It was an interesting conversation to have with him, and certainly, Mom, a blast from the past for anyone who either attended Miami during that era or afterwards, or anyone who grew up in Oxford the way that I did. Um, it was uh, it was fascinating to see it come back to life in so much detail. And I'm not giving up on that Steve Snyder state rep run. I think 2020, <laughs> 2022's got his name on it. <laughs> All right, Mom. Well, enjoy enjoy the rest of your day doing whatever it is you do all day in between the time that my kids call you on the FaceTime. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> yo, yo, I'm over here. Yo, dog, I'm over here. Yo, I'm over here. Get on the microphone and just rip the track. Who the hell is Shaq Attack? You better read the paper. Treat me like I was kind of blown away by the level of detail, by the specificity of of your story and its relevance today is something that I think is a great case study in, you know, for all these teams that are thinking about name changes and how a community can evolve their, um, you know, their, their thinking about it. 
So let me start by saying what what brought you to Miami? I I, I was trying to th- kind of rack my brain and think was this the last you know big you know institution that had the name Redskins or was it just the 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 quarter century mark or so um, from when it changed? So when did you decide that, you know that's the school you wanted to visit? It's it's odd. I was in Columbus for the annual uh, golf tournament that Jack Nicklaus has, you know, okay. in Dub- Dublin, Ohio, this summer. And it just suddenly crossed my mind, you know, Miami used to have the name. And so I guess I had been thinking about it maybe off and on a few times uh, before that. Mm-hmm. But when I, when the Nicklaus tournament happened, uh, won by John Rahm, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that ended, I was thinking, well, I'm right here. And, and, that is just around maybe two or three weeks, maybe just a short time after the Washington change. So I thought, right. I wonder what it's like now, you know, uh, a generation really after such a change. And, and uh, which, which you will remember as a uh, quite a, you know, quite a fight. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they changed. Uh, they, they were. They're still fighting about the the high school there that I went to, Talawanda, right. was the Braves, and now it's the Brave. And I went on to Bradley University, which was Braves, and I, I, this issue is sort of like followed my entire wow. youth yeah. in a weird in a weird way. Let me. You let should me, move to Cleveland. Oh God, no! <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I like uh, Skyline Chili too much. Um, okay. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you uh, before we dive into the Miami story. Uh-huh. Uh, given your proximity to the Washington football team, um, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm here in the suburbs of Chicago. So w- what's the reaction been like locally there? I, I, I'll be honest. I just have not, um, since the initial burst of news, I, I've been a little removed from it. I'm, I'm just curious what your perspectives on how this season has gone without the iconography. Well, I'm, I'm actually based in Miami, the Florida. Oh, okay. Gotcha. For a spell for a while. So, um, and I was based in New York before that. So, you know, some of us, a few of us on staff are kind of sprinkled around a bit, uh, often related to what we're doing. And I do a lot of college football. So, um, being, you know, down South, maybe I'm a little too far down South, but, you know, (laughs) uh, um, but being, uh, down South is the, but, but what I have seen so far is and and the, in the emails that I got after this story, is that I think it. I tell you what I, I really what I learned in doing the Oxford, the Miami of Ohio story, is that the these things blow over. I think it blew over more rapidly than I mm-hmm. would have expected. Now we have to factor in that that okay, Miami the school is not a rabid sports school, right? You know, it's, it's, it's a school that kind of sees it's, it has that great football history with the coaches and everything, the great coaches who came through there and who coached there, but it's not, I don't think it sees itself as a sportsy kind of school. You know, I don't think that's its, its self image. Okay. So if you're following the Washington football team, obviously that's entirely about sports. So it may take longer. Um, I, I think though, once the change gets, it's change is so hard, but once it's made, ah, gosh, you see, you see, uh, maybe some, some spite here and there, but I think it goes faster than, 
then then it went faster in Miami's case than I would have expected, even even factoring in that that's not you know a, a rabid sports school. Yeah, and there's lots of anecdotes I want to ask you about from your piece. One thing that I just wanted to see if how many people may have brought up. I've always thought it helped with, in Miami University's case. By the way, if you since you're in uh, Miami, Florida, I'm sure people do they when they find that out, do they give you the line about Miami was a college before Florida yep. was a state? We wore that. Yep. I heard that in my whole life growing up. <laughs> um, yep. But I always thought it helped that I would argue the two most signature sports things that happened in the university. Uh, literally the three happened post name change. You had the Ben Roethlisberger ah. era. You had the Wally mm-hmm. Zerbiak uh, Sweet Sixteen run, and you had the hockey team g- go to the Frozen Four. Pretty much, I mean, they should have won the national championship. Did anyone talk about how winning may have played a role in that sort of moving on phase? No, I didn't hear anything about that. Okay, but, but I I distinctly remember the Zerbiak. Uh, I was in New Orleans when they beat, I believe it was Utah in an upset in the second round. Right. I believe it might, it might even be the first round. And they wound up playing Kentucky in the Sweet 16 in St. Louis. And yep. um, yeah, and those things, uh, I don't even remember the name change coming up during, nine, that was 1999, spring 99. I'm right. sure it did. I'm sure it did, but I just don't remember it being part of the discussion. Uh, we were all mad for Wally, new, <laughs> new, new discovery, Wally. That's you know? right. Cover of Sports Illustrated, Wally's World. I think I had that yeah. in my dorm. Um, okay, so let's go back to Miami. It's the late 90s. Um, you know, they're talking about the name change. You talked to so many people that were involved with this, whether it's, you know, um, you know, community members, uh, high-profile alumni, board members, people in the... Uh, you know, who were in the mix on the front lines of this discussion. How did you go about figuring out who was right to uh, provide a voice on this particular, you know, topic? I definitely wanted um, to, to talk to current, I guess I started thinking about current students. You know, the current mm-hmm. student body president is in there. Um, it, the daughter of, of Sierra Leonean immigrants, by the way, you know, um, the several other current students in there. Um, I wanted to see what the atmosphere was like at the moment, you know, and whether anybody still brought this up, where it got brought up, when it got brought up. And so, so I sort of fanned out from there and I, and I wanted to, I went to Oxford in late July and I went in the bookstore, just the main, the, the one I focused on there. Just to look around and right, exactly. Just to look around. And I wondered before not knowing a thing, it's kind of where I started, whether there would be any of the old stuff in there, not giving thought to, to what has become of licensing for these colleges in the last, oh, 30 years or so. Um, You know, the idea that these colleges have such a clamp down now on the, the way they're, products are licensed. So I hadn't thought about that yet. I learned that in this whole process. And um, and so when I walked around the store, I thought, I mean, I studied everything and I saw that thing about a university before Florida was a state about 20 times in there, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> so annoying. on all kinds of gear. And then I noticed at the desk, the checkout desk, you know, just two little items that, that I saw, one sign and one trash can. And um, neither for sale. 
And so that was the extent of the, um, you know, of the, the look back that far into the last century in the past. And so I sort of went from there on um, once the store owner told me about the day where the university sent an administrator in to, to uh, take out all the old stuff. He, they'd given him a few months notice so they could sell as much as they could in that time frame. But once he told me that story, I knew I had to talk to uh, the, the man who, if I could find him, the administrator who came in that day. And it kind of just flowered out from there like that, uh, in, in that way, in all the cases. One student led me to another. Um, one of them, I got his name wrong in the original story, which is just a nightmare. And you can go, go back through. <laughs> that's, for people who don't know in the reporting business, that's one of our leading, like, wake up at 4 a.m. nightmares. So, right. Um, so, yeah, so it kind of and, I, you know, you can you go back and sort out why it happened and everything. But, yeah, I just kind of fanned out from there. And then Wayne Embry, you know, who mm -hmm. we basketball Hall of Fame, a Smith Hall of Fame and uh, general manager of three teams, former player and played at Miami in the late 50s. And, um, you know, he was chairman of the board at that point. And so we had a great long conversation and he told me, you know, more details from that. So it, it took a few months and it kind of, you know, of calling here and there while doing other jobs, but it, it kind of uh, <laughs> flowered that way. Yeah. Proud to say Wayne Embry uh, negotiated a contract from my house once during a, like a university, my parents were hosting something with the university and, and he was there and he, he was like, I need to use her phone. I think he was working for the Cavs at the time. And, and you know, we just left him alone in the kitchen and he, he, he you know, dotted some eyes across some T's on something. Uh, but I, I, he's, a, he's an interesting case because I think that's instructive for future um, institutions that are considering a change is that when you rally the, you know, the athletic heroes, I mean, Embry was a larger than life figure within the realm of the university. So his vote carried a certain level of gravitas. Did he talk about um, his own personal importance, uh, you know, and, and, and what kind of um, burden he felt as someone who was probably going to uh, sway a lot of minds to say, well, you know, if Wayne's for it and he knows what's best for the university or he's been a part of this culture. I mean, did, did, they, did the people who talked about their vote, their role, talk about the, the, the personal responsibility they felt in, in swaying public sentiment? He, he talked mainly about to hear him was to, to and to listen to him was to think that this thing was not quite as complicated as I would have imagined. And maybe yeah. I over-imagined it, but he talked of getting, you know, guff from, ju it's just a very few people that he brought up, you know, in stories that he told me that, you know, about the, the time and, and the moment that is still searing for him in the whole process is, is when uh, Dick Farmer, for whom the business school is named, mm -hmm. you know, big business magnet, um, and when he turned to him at the hearing and said, or he, he nudged him at the hearing and said, we have to change this because he had been listening to some of the testimonies of the of the Native American students and so on. And um, that's a real moment where you see, I mean, to me, that's a real tilt right there. Um, you know, when one guy for whom the business school is named, you know, 
gets the attention of of a of a sports icon in a place and says we i didn't it was almost like i didn't realize we have to change this and farmer mm-hmm. declined comment through a through a spokesman but a spokeswoman but said um but said you know but in it, it's it's that moment when you realize that maybe a lot of times the people in power are not privy a lot of times to the to the views you know though though uh embry said he definitely would tell me the story because he knew that farmer wouldn't mind it being retold and um then the student body president was telling me she said you know a lot of times they just don't know how people are thinking in you know a few a few or several rungs down you know in the in the power mm-hmm. complex they just don't know and they need to be you know that they're insulated in some way and they need to be or they, they it can help if they are um not need to be but it can help them if they are you know shown viewpoints that they hadn't thought about before and so that's the moment in his descriptions and then he said he said there were about year or two i think he said two years ultimately of of angry letters and so on and then it fizzled yeah and did they it didn't seem like they took a fundraising hit i think that's one of the popular lines that people use as an excuse to to retain a name like that is well we're going to lose the support of the alumni or whatnot but i didn't get the hint uh, from your piece that there was a any sort of decline i mean my father was involved in in helping to raise their money. That was his job at the time. And he never, he, he spoke about anxieties about it, but he never, it wasn't like they went into like some sort of crazy dry spell. So th- from your perspective, did, do you get the sense then that that can become an easy crutch to lean on, but that there might not be as much factual evidence to support? I think I give the people at that time, at that moment, credit for having a real fear about that. You know, the the opposition to something like this can be so strident and so, you know, just just as can the the proponents, but I just think I give people. I think that fear is real. I think it's especially in that time, licensing is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. Mid nineties, uh, you know. I think that was from everybody I talked to. That was a real worry around there. What's what's the hit going to be? And you know, when Steve Snyder, you know, who's who's been there. You know, he's they should have a statue of him at the place. He'd probably object to that. But, <laughs> you know, he's held every um, so many roles there when he uh, told me that he just can't ever remember there being that much of a hit. I think that surprised them to some degree. Um, I think the the ripple element of it and, and ultimately maybe it tells you some really intricate things about human nature, such as that. um when there's a change like this, maybe the people who were on the fence about donating kind of come to understand, no, wait a minute, I loved the place because of my memories of being there and not because of any nickname. Yeah, 100%. By the way, shout out to Steve Snyder, Oxford Institution, who I proudly wore uh, when he ran for state rep, I, I wore Steve Snyder merchandise all through my college days. He he was like, yeah, I don't know how he, he's like, you're the last, you're my last influencer or whatever, whatever he said to me. Um, <laughs> let me ask you, because the anecdote of Steve having to confiscate the gear from the bookstore is really powerful. The other one that really sticks with me, though, is when you were talking to the current students and they just, 
you know, for all the the anxiety back then and the the, the heated dialogue and whatever. They meet this with such an eye roll, it seems like. Like, oh, yeah, that's like what old people do is they talk about the name change. Like, it's it, it, to me, that was a great sign of how the, the wheels of progress just keep going. And after you cycle in a few generations of students, they don't even know what you're talking about, right? right. I mean, that seemed right. to be the prevailing sentiment among the younger generation, which I think, again, is it is instructive to other institutions when they think about how quickly people will eventually move on and, and discover a new normal, right? Right. And something I should mention that several people brought up is, is the idea that when you make the change, you also um, open channels that previously might have been unavailable to you, you know, in, in terms of support, in terms of it was brought up to me as, you know, they had better speakers on campus after that, you know, you know, things like that. But yes, the students of the moment and I actually had a kind of Steve Snyder and I were on the phone kind of laughing about this, about the student body president saying our alumni are adorable. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, after you grow up a while, get out of college and you realize, yeah, that's kind of how when we were in school, we pictured people oh, who yeah. had the a- age that we have now, you know, and I just loved that. um that assessment, like that a guy who an alumnus who could come to her cl- one of her classes and speak about the old days and the old name and how we meant no harm by the old name. We meant we wanted to honor, you know, it meant honor and dignity and all those arguments on that side of it. And um, and then, you know, that after you could say, oh, that, that was adorable, you know, those adorable old people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. It kind of just the wheels turn. And again, to another generation, it kind of reaches that point again where where the 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 matter of last generation was is kind of cute, you know. Right. And so so I think that's where I was really struck by the the student who said that (laughs) estimated that maybe half of the students you would ask now don't even know that it happened. Sure. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think is so powerful about Miami University's story is that, and, and this is really intensified in the last few decades since, but they had made a distinct movement to um, open up a bridge to the existing Miami tribe. Um, the, this this sort of seeds had been planted for the Miami Center. Um, people, I think you brought up in your piece, this was not just some sort of... Um, you know, uh, abstract issue to a number of people who worked at the university who had met members of the tribe, who had met Native peoples and could put a face on their experience as, um, you know, residents of this country. So from your perspective, like how much did did people talk about the human side of getting to know the members of the tribe may have played into the decision making or the empathy that they would have felt for the name just not really having that much importance to them. Yeah, I think for sure that that played a role. And maybe that's something that is not as entrenched or hasn't been as entrenched with the Washington football team, even though, sure. you know, they've certainly had their reach out times and, and, and so on. But the idea that it's a school and that, you know, it has this, it's had this long relationship, including the thing that people bring up when they, when they object to the to the old bygone distant past change in the name 
which is not many people anymore, but they they bring up that thing about as long as the wind shall blow, you know, which was in the the agreement that, that that's how long the the name would stand, and I believe that that was in around 1972, if I can remember correctly. And um, so, you know, the idea that you had that as part of the pact between two entities, and then a generation later you adhered to their request to change the name, realizing that I think that's a, that's a point of humanity is realizing that. You know that these things do happen in, in 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 humanity. Is that a human being can think one thing 24 years ago and then uh, and can kind of say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this anymore. 24 years on, so so that that person is not eternally bound by something that was you know agreed upon back then. And I think there's a lot of humanity in saying, you know, we know those words are in there and those words are used often by people on the other side of changing this yet you know these are people and we know them and so we're going to listen to them and we're going to uh you know we're going to uh have them in hearings and 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 maybe have a business magnet for whom the business school is named uh say you know what i hadn't thought of it this way and and make the change so i think it's a very human process that went on there. You know, lastly, we're, we're doing this in a week where Cleveland announces they're going to change the baseball team's name. And what would you say to that person? You know, maybe they're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I've seen a couple this week who just are saying, you know, I'm going to continue to call them what I want to call them. This honors the, you know, this honors native peoples. This is, you know, you're erasing them. It's cancel culture. It's PC culture. What would you say to them from having reported this story, gone to the community? Like, is there any advice you'd give it, it, for just how to maybe roll with this in a way that is is less offers them less personal anguish than they have to thrust upon themselves over a name change? Yeah, I've certainly had on my Facebook page somebody saying the Washington Redskins will always be the Washington Redskins to me. Um, have had one just livid email that I'd even you know written the story just one though I thought it'd be more um and I don't know what the comments have been underneath um but uh I would say that I would I would say that all of us have opinions probably viewpoints that are that are not in the majority and that over time kind of lose you know don't end up being the one that wins, the viewpoint that wins. I think most all of us have some sort of viewpoint that's like that. And um, it becomes just part of life, is that these these changes like that. And I would also say, did you know that the University of Utah, does anybody know this? They were the Redskins until 1972, I think it is. Hmm. Does anyone even know that? No. <laughs> um, it, are we talking about half the Miami students? Uh, half the Miami students, if we're saying, or 40%, whatever, don't know that theirs changed. Hardly anybody knows anymore that the Utes used to be the Redskins. You know, yeah. that's two generations. Or, or, or Syracuse, uh, you know, Stanford. There yeah. are so many schools that had that had done this so, for so long, I would never think of Syracuse is anything just but but orange. <laughs> right. 
and and Dartmouth. So yeah, it goes on. And I I can remember when Stanford was in the Rose Bowl as the Indians. I think so. Oh. Um, so what I would say regarding that putting Utah in mind and then another generation Miami in mind, these issues are just not very important at the at the base. They're very important that that the that the people who are made into mascots get to stop experiencing these really dumb, uneducated depictions of their people. They're very important that way. They are just not very important in terms of how uh, the evidence seems to show that they're not very important in terms of how sports fans live their lives. It's just doesn't matter that much in that vein. Well, look, the piece was great. You've been so generous with your, with your time here. One final thought. You went to Oxford. Did you, Please tell me you ate like bagel and deli or something. Like, did you get any local well, local cuisine? I just I've been there before during the Herb Sendek regime <laughs> to do a to do a feature on him when I worked in Kentucky, and I always loved that guy. But um, but uh, I you know the pandemic kind of yeah. When I when I go to a place now, the expectations are all different. I've been traveling a lot for college football this fall i think i've been in nine college towns eight stadiums and i just it's, it's just not living it the same way it's yeah. just not yeah i hear you totally but hopefully we'll be hopefully next year you know i we're, we're turning the right corner we'll get things back to normal but again i'll tell everybody read the piece it's it's such a great instructive um uh manual for for how these name changes happen and, and so much great color i'm sure lots of oxford uh residents and and uh uh, you know, former residents will be listening and I'm sure they, they appreciated the work you put into it. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Cause I, I did put a lot of, um, I, I just, I put a, I really cared about it a lot. I mean, I care about all of the stories, but I cared about it way more than I do say the college football playoff rankings or something like that, you know? <laughs>